Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, and we have a loaded show today. Three segments. The first segment, we will review all the fights that happened this past weekend, Saturday and Sunday. We had Juan Francisco Estrada defending his uh, sanctioning body super flyweight title against RG Cortez. And we've got the Sunday pay-per-view headlined by Andy Ruiz versus King Kong Luis Ortiz. And we'll talk about some of the fights that happened on that undercard as well. Then we will go to an extended Q&A question and answer session. I got a bunch of questions that I will uh, get into. And we will backtrack this week as far as the 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 year historical perspective because unfortunately Ernie Shavers died uh, a few days ago at the age of 78 from undisclosed from an undisclosed illness uh so the final portion of this program will be dedicated to me talking about watching Ernie from when I first started watching boxing in 1977, and I will be covering his fights. We uh, talking about his fights versus Muhammad Ali, the two fights with Larry Holmes, and his incredible destruction of Ken Norton, as well as what happened the rest of his career. So we go on to segment one, which is. The fights from this past weekend. One Francisco Estrada went to hell and back defending his title against a nondescript opponent in R.G. Cortez. R.G. Cortez has had a journeyman career. This was supposed to be an easy victory for Estrada before he fights Chocolatito or Bam Rodriguez in a mega fight, in a super fight at 115 pounds. He started off solid. Um, I had him winning three of the first five rounds, but then Cortez began to apply the pressure, and Cortez lulled Estrada into a firefight. Firefight. And in the fifth round, Estrada's nose was bloody, but then in round seven, Estrada landed a beautiful combination to the body that dropped Cortez and then after that eighth round Estrada was coming on strong and dominated the eighth round then I got to give Cortez credit he started boxing instead of being the aggressor like he was early and he gave Estrada hell the last four rounds by boxing I had Estrada winning by one point 114 113 I had to fight even six all but the knockdown was the difference. Estrada right now reminds me of Juan Manuel Marquez at the end of his career in his fights versus Timothy Bradley and uh, Mike Alvarado, where he didn't have the same accuracy with his shots. And his defense was all but done. Estrada has no defense left whatsoever. Uh, if I was his camp, I'd retire after the next Chocolatito fight because I don't see him beating Chocolatito. Now, both men have fought each other twice. 
and have been in wars. The 115-pound division the last eight years has been war after war with uh, Sarung Vasai, Estrada, Carlos Quadras, and Chocolatito. Bam Rodriguez is going to eat alive Estrada and Chocolatito. Estrada and Chocolatito need to fight each other and in my opinion, should be the last fight of either either man's career because neither man should be in the in the ring with a young, early twenties, combination punching fast fighter in Bam Rodriguez. Bam Rodriguez will do irreparable harm to both fighters. If Chocolatito and Estrada want that last big payday, and I'm hearing that it's all but a done deal, Chocolatito Estrada three is in the making. Have that fight and move on. Just move on. Call it a day. Goodbye. And that was Saturday night's main event on the zone. Sunday, we had a pay-per-view. And um we had Abner Mares, who hadn't fought in over four years, coming back, and he should have stayed his ass at ringside with the sunglasses on and stopped the bullshit. First of all, Abner Mares has had a good career. Not a great career, not a Hall of Fame career like the fucking announcing team mentioned and claimed that he's had. No, yeah, he's won titles in three divisions, but name me the all-time great fighters he's beaten, right? And he's, I've never looked at him as, oh, this guy is an all-time great. He was a solid to good fighter, never a great fighter. And he fought Saturday night. Like a man that had no business coming back after being out the ring for four years. He should have stayed his ass home. Um, in my opinion, he lost that fight. He got a he, he got a uh, gift draw. But he had he had no business. He had no business uh, 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 fighting against a guy that's a journeyman, a goddamn journeyman in, in Miguel Flores. Miguel Flores, no punching power in his 25 wins, only 12 KOs, was hitting Abner at will. And I thought I had Flores winning six rounds to four. There was a couple of rounds that could have gone either way. They gave Maris a, a gift draw. Maris should take that draw and get the fuck out of Dodge. Go back to announcing. As an announcer, he's the same as a fighter. He's solid. He's nothing great. He doesn't give you, he doesn't reveal any earth-shattering information. He doesn't make you think while he announces. He's he's solid. He's solid. I mean, not saying much, but he's better than the clowns, Moron and Xanax on the zone. He's better than Tim Bradley, but that's not saying a lot. Abner should stick to announcing, uh, become a trainer, start a school for for, for young uh, Mexican-Americans, boxers out in California, do something. But don't step in the ring because the minute he faces a very good fighter at 135 pounds, whether it's Tank or Frank Martin, irreparable damage will be done to him. He needs to retire and stay out the ring. I don't know why he came back. He makes more money announcing than fighting because he ain't a draw for nobody. All right. Now we get on to uh, Pitbull Isaac Cruz. 
who fought Eduardo Ramirez, another light-punching fighter, another guy that had no chance of beating Isaac Cruz. He was tailor-made for Isaac Cruz, who ran through him and destroyed him in two rounds. Easy. Uh, Cruz has had two easy fights, the last two fights. The walking zombie, Yorkis Gamboa, and now uh, Eduardo Ramirez. Okay, Cruz. The people, PBC, stop putting them in with these stiffs. I want to see him against Frank Martin. Maybe a rematch. People are talking about a rematch with Javante Davis. He's not beating Javante Davis. Javante beat him with one hand. All right? I want to see him against Frank Martin because Isaac Cruz is the type of fighter that bring the best out of a guy that I consider a future all-time great in Frank Martin. Let's see that fight happen. And now to the main event, in which was a very intriguing fight between Andy Ruiz and Louis King Kong Ortiz in a WBC title eliminator. This fight was, this fight was, wow. I mean, this fight had ebb and flows. This fight, at times, neither one was doing anything, but after the knockdowns happened, After the knockdowns happened, it became very intense and intriguing, and there was some incredible, incredible action in a few of the rounds. Round one, I gave to Ortiz. He was moving. He was throwing that jab. But then in the second round, inside of an exchange, Ruiz dropped Ortiz with a short, crisp, stunning right hand. Ortiz got up. And then he went down a second time for what was a push. The referee erroneously called it a knockdown, so you had to give it 10-7. Ladies and gentlemen, there were several rounds where Ortiz dominated by boxing. Andy Ruiz fought this fight like the man I'll be talking about later on in the podcast, Ernie Shavers, where he was looking to land that one right hand and not doing anything else. And he would knock Ortiz down again later in the fight with another right hand. He was credited with three knockdowns. Two were legit. The third one, Ortiz was very hurt. But Ortiz came roaring back and dominated the last few rounds to win on my scorecard. He didn't win the fight. Ruiz won by uh, by unanimous decision, 113, 112, 114, 111, 114, 111. I'm not calling this a robbery, even though I had Ortiz winning. I thought that Ortiz did enough to win despite being knocked down three times. But ladies and gentlemen, it's damn near impossible to win a fight when you get knocked down three times. I had Ortiz winning eight of the 12 rounds and winning 113-112 after you deduct the three points for the knockdowns. There were two or three rounds that could have gone either way. So if you swing them with plus the three knockdowns, then you can easily make a case that Ruiz deserved the decision. Um, I would like to see a rematch. I doubt if it happens. I think what's next for Ruiz is... He fights the winner of Hellenius Wilder, October 15 at the Barclay Center. And for all intents and purposes, that might be for a vacant WBC title, depending on where Tyson Fury's mental condition is at the moment. So we'll see. But Ruiz has become a aging slugger. He's a one-dimensional fighter. He's no longer a classic boxer puncher who the tremendous counterpuncher. He's reliant on that right hand. He's become Ernie Shavers in his career. 
Not as powerful as Ernie Shavers, but he's got quicker hands, and he does have explosive punching power. Ask Luis Ortiz and ask Anthony Joshua as he shocked the world with that right cross. But a good boxer will befuddle him like Joseph Parker did in their only fight years ago and how Joshua did in the second fight and how Ortiz did for the majority of this fight. Andy Ruiz is a one-trick pony. Is that one-trick pony enough to beat a Deontay Wilder? We will see. We will see. Now, ladies and gentlemen, on to the question and answer session. But before we go to the question and answer session, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in hearing bonus content, Garrett Gonzalez and I are doing throughout the month of September exclusively on the Fight Game Media Patreon page for $5 a month. The link is in the description. You'll get, just for this month alone, our entire rundown of the Hulu docuseries, Mike, allegedly on the career of Mike Tyson. Listen to the podcast. Uh, We're recording. By the time you hear this, all four episodes of the Mike Tyson review will be available to be heard on the Patreon page for $5 a month. You also get to hear my greatest upsets in boxing history. And I'll run it down real quick so far, and it's only available on the Patreon page. I've done shows on Lloyd Hunnigan's upset of Donald Curry, Iran Barkley's upset of Thomas Hearns, Villamar Fernandez's upset of Alexis Arguello, Esteban de Jesus upset of of Roberto Duran Junior Jones upset of Marco Antonio Barrera and I am missing one um oh and of course Frankie the Surgeon Randall's upset of Julio Cesar Chavez all of those greatest upsets in boxing history are available on the Patreon page um, five dollars a month. Check, check, check the link in the script, in in the description, and you will be routed to where to subscribe and and to be able to listen to not only the Hulu review we're doing of each individual episode, but as well as my greatest upsets in boxing history. And for you wrestling fans, you had a huge wrestling weekend. AEW, WWE, all had huge shows. You hear all exclusive content on AEW and WWE, NWA, MLW, Impact, etc. On that Patreon page as well. And they got a lot of inside information concerning CM Punk, John Moxley, Adam, Adam Page, Tony Khan, the whole nine. Now, on to the question and answer session of the podcast. We got a bunch, so I'm going to see if I can get through these, through all of them. Let's see. First question is from longtime listener of all my podcasts throughout all my uh, uh, platforms, LL School K. LL School K asks, no more cab drivers. Richard Torres versus Jared Anderson should be next. They both top ranks, top rank fighters. Thoughts? There is no way in the world Bob Arum is going to match two heavyweight prospects in Torres and Anderson right now. First of all, 
Richard Torres doesn't have a shot in the world of beating Jared Anderson. Not today, not tomorrow, not next year, not 10 years from now. They're not, they're not going to fight. So that answers that. Unfortunately, I see where you're coming from because Jared Anderson has beaten bum after bum after bum. It's time to step him up. I would like to see him fight Herkovich, the bullshit boogeyman in the division, because he will smoke Herkovich. I would like to see that fight since um, big baby Jared Anderson is now ranked in the IBF criminal cartel organization. Okay, next question. From uh, Rafael Toro. Rafael asked, pre-Tito Vargas and pre-Margarito Cotto would have been nice. What what you say? That would be a very good fight. Um, Cotto versus Bar- Vargas. The Fernando Vargas that beat Ike was a tremendous fighter. Now, I believe that he got a gift decision against Ronald Winky Wright. Ronald Ricky Wright would have beaten Fernando Vargas 99 times out of 100 because of his high guard defense, his incredible right jab, and his constant throwing of combinations. He kept Vargas off all day. Vargas' face looked like it was beaten by a baseball bat. And then, of course, Winky got robbed. One of many robberies that would occur in the great Ricky Wright's Hall of Fame career. How would a pre-Vargas and pre-Cotto fight turn out? It would have been a hard-fought fight. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, Ricardo, uh, Fernando Vargas was a legitimate 154-pounder. He knocked down Trinidad. He gave Trinidad hell before Trinidad knocked him out in the 12th round. A past his prime, Vargas gave Oscar De La Hoya hell before De La Hoya knocked him out. And he beat Icorte. He outboxed Icorte. Shockingly, and this was before Tito. So if you give me the Mayor the Mayorga, the Vargas that beat Corte against the Cotto before he fought Margarito, and that and that was a one hundred and let me see. That was uh Cotto at 147 pounds. Remember Cotto's a natural junior welterweight. Not a natural 154-pounder. Vargas versus Cotto would have been a war. I don't think either man would have got knocked out. I, bo- I I wouldn't be surprised if both men got knocked down. But And I hate to say this because I'm not a fan of Vargas's, and I'm a fellow Puerto Rican like Rafael and like Cotto. Vargas by unanimous close decision because he's the bigger guy and... He could have outboxed Cotto. I don't know if Cotto could have outboxed Vargas. It would have been a tough fight, I predict, if that fight ever happened in your time span. You put him in, in you put him in the quantum leap time machine. Vargas by decision. Uh Jesus King uh Salas, another fellow Puerto Rican, uh the Boricua is out 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 today. He asked, can you do an in memoriam of, of Ernie Shavers for your next episode? Yes, I'm going to do that. That'll be the very last segment of the podcast. Okay, next question. Oh, he also has a question, Jesus, about Rocky Johnson was a sparring partner with Muhammad Ali. How legit of a boxer was Rocky Johnson? 
Rocky Johnson did some boxing growing up in Canada, or where he's from, but he was never a pro boxer, and there is there is no records of him ever having any amateur boxing. Now, he did spar with George Foreman, and there was rumors of him, him sparring with Muhammad Ali. That also could, with Muhammad Ali, that could have been storyline related because when he went to Memphis to wrestle Jerry Lawler, they pretended like he was a boxer turned wrestler that he had never wrestled, even though he had been a professional wrestler for damn near 10 years. There are no, there there is no proof that Rocky Johnson ever had any real fights, but he did spar with George Foreman. And there's a possibility he would have uh, sparred with Muhammad Ali. And he probably was sparring with Foreman because Rocky had incredible speed and movement. But uh, I wish there was uh, some type of footage of that uh, sparring session because I'm sure the minute Foreman hit Rocky with a thudding hook to the body, Rocky winced in pain. All right. On to the next question. The next question is from Julius Streeter. Uh, by the way, you, uh, you fellow fight fans out there, if you want to see a great YouTube page, Streeter Sports on YouTube, check out Julius Streeter. And also, check out the Fight Game Media Network's YouTube page. Um, you'll have on standbys, stand, on standalones, my 45 greatest historical fighters of the last 45 years. Bi- bi- biographies that will be on the YouTube page, but you also have late breaking up to the minute news on professional wrestling and mixed martial arts on that YouTube channel. So, Streeter Sports, great boxing content by uh, Julia Streeter, who, who question I will answer, and Fight Game Media YouTube page for all the latest wrestling and MMA news. Now, Julius asked, your top five greatest Cuban fighters ever. And I did this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to reiterate it real quick. Number five and number four, depending on what order you want to put it, Guillermo Rigondeau and Joel Casamayor. Joel Casamayor beat a great Diego uh, Corrales, stopped Corrales in their first fight, lost the second fight, and won the third fight, the rubber fight. And uh, Guillermo Rigondeau, one of the greatest super bantamweights of all time, and put on one of the greatest performances of the last 20 years in his incredible virtuoso performance against Nonino Donaire in the fight I attended at Radio City Music Hall several years ago. All right. That's number five. That's number four. Number three, one of the greatest welterweights of all time. And God damn, I uh, talk about uh, talk about uh, talk about uh, early signs of dementia. I forgot the man's name. I'm I'm losing my mind. He was the welterweight champion of the world, predominantly from 1968. To 1975, and I am forgetting his name. God, Lord. God, Lord, why? <laughs> uh, Billy Bacchus beat him 
uh, by a by a shocking upset, one of the greatest upsets in boxing history. On on probably on my short list. Now, what the hell is this game? Okay, finally came to me. Jose Napolis, my number three greatest Cuban fighter of all time. I apologize for early signs of dementia, ladies and gentlemen. Jose Napolis, my number three greatest Cuban fighter of all time. He dominated the welterweight division from the late 60s to the mid-70s. Two-time welterweight champion of the world. One of the greatest welterweights of all time. Number two, another all-time great. He's in my top five welterweights of all time. And that's Kid Gavilon. He is my number three greatest Cuban of all time. And my greatest Cuban fighter of all time. Kid Chocolate was a world champion at 126 pounds featherweight and 130 pounds super featherweight throughout most of the 1930s. And he retired in 1938. And ladies and gentlemen, he had 136. He had 136 wins when he retired in a pro career that only lasted 11 years. Unreal, and he retired. When he retired, he was only 28 years old. He turned pro at 17, retired at 28, had 152 152 fights in 11 years. Ladies and gentlemen, he averaged almost 14 fights a year. I don't believe Jared Anderson in three years of boxing has had 14 fights total. Kid Chocolate, the greatest. Cuban fighter of all time. So thank you, uh, Julius, for the, for that great question. All right, let me see what other questions you have. Okay, from Long Tran, my my friend from down under. What's up, Long Tran? Long time listener of me throughout all my uh throughout all my platforms. If you watch a softball fighter versus orthodox fighter, you will hear some commentators mention a softball advantage. What is a softball advantage? The softball fighters really have an advantage over an orthodox fighter. In a way, they do. If you watch the Andy Ruiz-Lewis Ortiz fight, Brian Kenny mentioned, and Brian Kenny, a solid boxing announcer. I love Brian Kenny. He knows the difference between a left hook and a right cross, and he's not Mr. Hypopoly. And he, and, um, he learned a lot sharing... Uh, the booth on Friday Night Fights with Max Kellerman and Teddy Atlas. Two great boxing minds, two great boxing historians. Now back to uh, the question. Once Ortiz recovered from the knockdowns against Ruiz, you saw the difficulty Ruiz had against a softball like Ortiz. Ortiz was moving, throwing the jab, and for the majority of the second half of the fight, Ortiz dominated. Because Ruiz was unaccustomed to fighting softball fighters. So that, in a nutshell, answers your question, um, Long Tran. If you're not used to fighting softball fighters, and in Ruiz's, Ruiz's case, his first softball he ever fought, the softball definitely has the advantage. You got to land that right hand to eliminate that advantage, in which Ruiz did to win a very tight decision that could have gone either way. Okay, Big Malcolm X play cousin, long-time listener, uh, one of my favorite uh, followers 
that I also follow on Twitter because he knows his boxing. And Big Malcolm X play cousins to ask, does boxing need a commissioner? It's the one sport that needs it desperately. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yes, they need it. Boxing needs a Vince McMahon from the 1980s that ran the WWF. A Pete Rozelle that took the NFL from a from a a a regional sport. It was only considered East Coast into not only a national sport, but an international sport. You look at it right now, the National Football League makes more money than any other professional sport on the planet. Okay, that's Pete Rozelle right there. And the NBA. David Stern took the NBA from the finals being telecast in the late 70s to early 80s. Excuse me. The finals being broadcast the late 70s to early 80s on tape delay to a bigger contract with CBS and to having all its games aired in primetime beginning in 1983. Then in the 1990s, it exploded. Of course, you had help from Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and then, of course, the great one, Michael Jordan. But in the 1990s, Stern, along with the superstars he had, made it an international sport. And today, the international influence in the NBA is at an all-time high. All part of David Stern's vision. Boxing needs a Stern, McMahon, or Roselle to A, clean up the sport, and B, make make this great sport the sport that we all love into an international uh, an international buzzsaw. We have too many cooks in boxing. We need one guy to control things, but it's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's not like, you know, Dana White in UFC, he has, I can't stand the bastard. He rips off all his fighters. But he's made the UFC into an international juggernaut. That I can't deny. I would love a Dana White type character who pays his fighters correctly. The closest thing you have in boxing to a guy that runs things and pays his fighter well and puts on great fights is Al Heyman and PBC. If we had an Al Heyman running all of boxing, You can see boxing blossom like the other sports I mentioned. But it will never happen. It will never happen because you have too many corrupt sanctioning bodies. If I was the boxing commission, I'd get rid of all the fucking sanctioning bodies and just name one champion per division. But yes, we need a boxing commissioner. It's not happening. It never will happen because the sport is just too damn uh, filled with criminals. Period. Okay. Now, from um, Darren. What's up, Darren? Uh, Darren, DPA722 on Twitter. What's up, Darren? He asked, you, he asked me a qu- couple of questions. First question. How do you think about between Naomi Noe and Jeff Fennick would pan out prime, for, prime versus prime? 
Inoue is the type of fighter that you cannot outbox because of that phenomenal left jab of his. You can't outbox a guy with a jab like that. In order for you to beat a guy like Inoue, you got to be on top of him. You've got to apply pressure and you got to have a great chin. All characteristics of Jeff Fennick in his prime. Like I mentioned on my Jeff Fennick historical overview several weeks ago, Jeff Fennick reminded my father and I of Roberto Duran, minus the devastating one-punch knockout power, but Fennick was a very underrated defensive fighter who applied pressure and broke you down. A fight between Inoue and Fennick would be incredible. Who would I pick? If it's a 15, I'm, I'm going to go 15 rounds because when Fennick first began as a champion, he was fighting 15-round fights. And this fight could go either way. Either Fennick by a tough 15-round decision in which both men might suffer irreparable damage. Or Inoue by a spectacular late, late knockout while bleeding from both eyes. So I see either result happening. I know it's a cop-out, but goddamn, uh, that would be just be an amazing fight at 118 pounds. Second question, Darren asks, if you can, where would you rank the greatest Australian trainer, Johnny Lewis, on an all-time trainer's list? He's right outside my number five. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, my top five, in no particular order, Eddie Futch, Emmanuel Stewart, Georgie Benton, Oh, I said Eddie Futch, Georgie Benton, Emmanuel Stewart, Angelo Dundee, and Nacho Berestein. Those are my top five. You could have, you could easily say Johnny Lewis and Freddie Roach could battle for that sixth spot. Okay, I wouldn't argue if you had Johnny Lewis six. Johnny Lewis trained the greatest Australian fighter of all time in the aforementioned Jeff Nick. He trained the greatest. Australian import of all time and quite possibly, and in my opinion, the greatest Russian fighter of all time in Costa Zoo. That alone puts him in the top 10 and fighting for that six or seven spot. Darren, once again, thanks, man. And um, I, I appreciate your sentiments and I appreciate your well wishes whenever you uh, DM me about my um, personal issues going on at home. Thank you very much, big man. My final question, once again, um, from Rafael Toro. Why do you think after the Shane Mosley fights, Vernon Forrest didn't get the chance to fight the big names? And how do you think he would have done against them? The reason Vernon Forrest didn't get any fights against the big names was as soon as he beat Shane Mosley twice, he lost his undisputed welterweight championship of the world in two fights consecutive to Ricardo Mayorga. He lost both fights. First fight, he shockingly got knocked out. Second fight, he fought much better, but was out-hustled by Mayorga. And then he beat an, uh, a past-his-prime Mike Corte, solid win for Forrest. But by the time he could face the Oscar De La Hoyas, the, uh, Tino was done. Tino was washed up. Tito would have never fought Forrest because by the time Forrest beat Mosley, Tito had already moved up to middleweight and had been destroyed by Bernard Hopkins and was never the same. Okay. Uh, as far as uh, De La Hoya goes, De La Hoya was 
past its prime and uh, a fight with Vernon Forrest when it happened. Had they fought each other, would have been a very close fight. Could have been one of those fights where Forrest did enough to win, but uh, De La Hoya gets the hometown decision. Who else would have been? He wasn't beating Ronald Winky Wright. I think Ronald Winky Wright was too tall and too active. So uh, Vernon Forrest had a very good career, uh, gunned down at an early age, unfortunately. But by the time he was gunned down, he was already past his prime. Vernon Forrest is a borderline Hall of Famer. His two wins over a Hall of Fame fighter and Shane Mosley were incredible victories, well-deserved. They fought 100 times. He beat Mosley 100 times. But by the time he was welterweight champion of the world, those big names were long gone. Would he have beaten Zab Judah? Yes, that wouldn't have been a big big money fight. Could he have beaten Floyd Mayweather? By the time he would have faced a Floyd Mayweather, 2006, Forrest was already at 154 pounds and passed his prime. He would have lost to Floyd because he wouldn't have had the same jump in his step that he had back in 2002 when he dominated Sugar Shane mostly. All right, that is the end of the Q&A session, and now we go on to my historical retrospective of Ernie Shavers. Ernie Shavers died a few days ago at the age of 78. Un- undisclosed illness, he died. Um, Ernie Shavers' early career I mean, he fought in bonds. He 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 fought in in clubs. Uh, it wasn't until he got to fight Jerry Quarry in Madison Square Garden that he was looked at as a serious contender. And in that fight, he got destroyed in the very very first round. He got knocked out in the first round by Jerry Quarry, December fourteenth, nineteen seventy three, in Madison Square Garden. Um, after a draw with Jimmy Young, he moved up and he got. To fight Ron Lyle And Ron Lyle stopped him in the 6th round and This was in September of 1975 Then he worked his way back up After losing to Lyle He won his next 5 fights And then he got a shot At Muhammad Ali On September 29th in 1977 In Madison Square Garden The first time I ever saw Ernie Shavers fight on television I watched this fight with my father and he gave Ali hell. In the second round, he landed one of the biggest right hands anybody ever landed on Ali. And Ali was in serious trouble. And Ali put on one of the greatest poker faces in boxing history. He acted like nothing happened. Even though he admitted after the fight was over that that punch hurt him so so bad that he almost met his kinfolk back in Africa. That's how bad he was hurt. That's how badly he was staggered. But he didn't show it. Ernie didn't know Ali was hurt. And this was a testament to Ali's great chin. Throughout that 15-round fight, Shavers landed some incredible right crosses. In the 13th and 14th round, he battered Ali. Going into the 15th round, Ali had already won the fight because that fight, which was televised on NBC, I believe Dick Enberg was the announcer that night, that fight did an experiment 
This was for the Undisputed Heavyweight Championship of the World, and that fight did an experiment with both the WBC, WBA, and the New York State Athletic Commission agreeing to NBC announcing the scores of all three judges after each round. After 12 rounds, Ali had the fight in his bag. All he had to do was survive, which I didn't agree with. There were several rounds that could have gone either way. In the 13th and 14th round, she was rocked Ali left and right. Kudos to, to Angelo Dundee. Angelo Dundee knew the score because he had a guy in the dressing room watch the fight on television and report back to him via walkie-talkie to tell him how Ali was doing on the scorecards. He knew Ali was winning, but he never told Ali. Because he didn't want Ali to let up. And if he would have told Ali, Ali might have gotten knocked out the way Ali was fighting. 15th round, Ali felt deep down inside that the fight was on the line. And in the 15th round, Shavers and Ali went to toe-to-toe in an incredible 15th round. One of the greatest 15th rounds in the history of heavyweight division. Shavers rocked Ali early as they were going back and forth, but for the last 30 to 45 seconds, Ali staggered Ernie with a beautiful combination of lefts and rights and had Ernie out on his feet when the bell rang to win that round, and he won a unanimous decision. Um, I'm not going to say do I think Ali won that fight or if Shavers deserved to win that fight. Because that fight could have gone either way. There were several rounds that were back and forth. There were several rounds that Ali did nothing. And Shavers let Ali off the hook by not banging Ali's body. Shavers was conserving his energy, in my opinion. The following spring of 1978, Ernie Shavers fought a young, well, he really wasn't young. He was 28 at the time. Um, Larry Holmes. First time I ever saw Larry Holmes on television, my father was always telling me how great Larry Holmes was, that Larry Holmes could be the next Ali, according to my father. And that night, Larry Holmes put on one of the greatest performances of his entire boxing career by easily beating Ernie Shavers with the greatest jab I've ever seen that night and ever since. Larry put on a boxing clinic with that jab, movement jab, to win every second of every round to get a shot at Ken Norton. Then Larry Holmes beat Ken Norton. And then Ken Norton, the following spring of 1979, fought Ernie Shavers. The winner of this fight gets a shot at Larry Holmes for the heavyweight championship of the world, well, for the WBC title, because at that point in time, Ali was still the WBA champion. So, March 23rd, 1979, Ken Norton. The night of that fight, my father tells me that Ken Norton's getting knocked out. That Ken Norton cannot withstand the incredible right hand that Ernie Shavers had. Ernie Shavers had one of the greatest right hands in boxing history. I had uh, Luigi Pelosi, longtime follower of mine on Twitter, Asked me a question, and I gotta find it because this this goes hand in hand with this historical overview on 
man, I, I can't, I can't, I cannot find it. I cannot find the question that Luigi asked me. I know Luigi asked me to compare Wilder's power to, he wanted me to compare Wilder's power to Ernie Shavers, Deontay Wilder's power to Ernie Shavers. And also he wanted me to compare um, his power to Mike Tyson and George Foreman. Because I believe Luigi said that he felt Shaver's right hand, just his right cross alone, was a bigger, big, uh, was, was more powerful than both Foreman and Tyson. But Tyson was a more explosive fighter. Yes, because Tyson had power in both hands, especially the Mike Tyson from 1986 to 1988, pre Buster Douglas. George Foreman had <laughs> mammoth, godlike power. Ernie Shavers threw that right hand like a shotgun, as shown throughout the fight with Muhammad Ali. And in his fight versus Ken Norton, my father said, Ken's not going to be able to withstand that right hand. So, Luigi, before I go into the Ken Norton fight, in which Ernie Shavers obliterated Ken Norton, the only guy I believe that has a greater right cross in the history of the heavyweight division is Deontay Wilder. And that's only Luigi because Wilder's six foot seven and he's going down he's coming down with that right hand with force like Alexis Arguello did in the featherweight, junior lightweight and lightweight division, like Thomas Hearns did from welterweight up to light heavyweight, like Bob Foster did at light heavyweight. These guys threw punches from I mean from inc- from incredible height. Ernie Shavers was a small heavyweight. He was only six feet tall. So he couldn't come down with leverage like Wilder, like Hearns, like Arguello, like Felix Trinidad at 5'11 as a welterweight. Those who I consider with some of the greatest right crosses, if not the greatest right crosses in the history of boxing. Shavers had to lunge. So he threw his right cross like a shotgun because Larry Holmes and Muhammad Ali were both six foot three. So he and Ken Norton six foot three. So he's got to he's got to come up with his shot, not down. So it's a diff. So the leverage is less. Wilder's coming down with more force. That's right. His right hand and Luigi. Those right. Those two right hands that he landed on Tyson Fury in the first fight when he knocked him down in the twelfth round when Fury did the Undertaker and got up at count of nine and a half. And in the second fight where he. Broke his hand and he dropped Wilder uh, Fury and Fury had the 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 look of the, the fear of God in his in his eyes before Fury got up to dominate and almost kill uh, Deontay Wilder. Those are two. Those might be the two biggest right hands ever landed in the history of heavyweight boxing. But Ernie Shavers, for his height, only six feet tall, and the way he had to lunge, incredible power. Only seconded, in my opinion. To Deontay Wilder and in his fight against Ken Norton Ken Norton was looking for that right hand and got caught with a left hook early in the fight and then batted with a right cross and then he was hurt and he went down and in the second time he went down he crumpled the referee said it's over Ernie Shea was my first round knockout and my father was screaming saying I told you so I told you so he predicted that Shavers was going to knock out Ken Norton. September 28th, 
He gets his second opportunity against Larry Holmes and his second world title shot in two years, the first being against Ali, this time against Larry Holmes. Holmes is a huge favorite. And the first six rounds, it's all Larry Holmes. Look at Larry Holmes. Holmes throwing that jab. Ernie Chavis has no answer for that jab. Look at Larry go. Ernie looking to land the right hand. He cannot get close to Larry Holmes, who has that incredible, undeniable, unapproachable left jab. Then in the seventh round, ladies and gentlemen, Ernie began to land the right hand. He landed about three big right hands early in the round. And Ernie! Ernie has caught Larry's attention. What a right hand. The right hand that Larry has to watch out for. And then finally, late in round seven. There, right there. Right there. That right hand by Ernie Shavers. I knew it. Larry's in trouble. Larry's in trouble. So Larry's got to hold on. Ernie Shavers. Can he pull it off? Can he pull it off? The bell saves Larry Holmes in the seventh round. Larry gets caught walking into a spectacular right cross by Ernie Shavers. And I just did the call, just imitated the call that Howard Cosell did. Howard loses, was losing his fucking mind because he kept saying throughout the whole fight, Larry's got to watch out for Ernie's right hand. And when it does, right there! <laughs> that was great. And then, beginning with the eighth round, Larry began to just batter Ernie. Er, that was looked like Ernie's last shot. And in the ninth round, he was pouring it on. Larry, Larry, teeing off on Ernie. The referee got to look at this. Ernie's in trouble. And then, oh, my God. He did it. Late in the ninth round. Ernie landed another right that dropped Holmes, and referee Davey Pearl erroneously called it a slip. Howard got on Davey real bad. That should have been another knockdown. But that was it. Round 10 and 11, Ernie Shavers took a battering. And finally, in the 11th round, finally, referee Davey Pearl stops the fight. Ernie has nothing to be ashamed of. He gave it his all, and he almost knocked out the heavyweight champion of the world. Kudos to Ernie Shavers. Ernie was never the same after that fight. Uh, at this point in time, Ernie was now 35 years old, and he never had another huge win after that. He got knocked out a few months later by Bernardo Mercado. He got beat up by Randall Tex Cobb, and that was it. And he fought way too long. Came back for two fights at the age of 51 in 1995. So Ernie fought way too long, but Ernie gave us so many great memories in the late 70s with me, with, with my father and I. His knockout win over Ken Norton, um, his incredible 15-round war with Muhammad Ali, which he can— you can make a you can make a valid point that he could have won that decision. That fight could have gone either way. And then that right hand that hit Larry Holmes with one thing that Ernie did. Ernie gave the two the consensus the consensus 
two greatest heavyweights of all time. And my father said the two greatest heavyweights he ever saw were Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes. I can't say Ali because I wasn't young enough to see Ali in his prime. I didn't see Ali till 1977, right? This was the second time I saw Ali fight. Larry Holmes is the greatest heavyweight I've ever seen, period, since I began watching boxing in 1977. I hold Larry in high regard. One of the most underrated, legendary fighters that ever lived. I compare Larry Holmes to Frank Robinson of Major League Baseball, of the Cincinnati Reds and Baltimore Orioles. An underrated, legendary athlete. He was a legendary boxer. So if you go on what my father said, that these are the two greatest heavyweights of all time, Ernie Shavers almost knocked out both of these guys, had them in huge trouble, and because of their greatness— they were able to overcome and beat Shavers when they should have been stretched out. It's the difference between a Muhammad Ali Larry Holmes when compared to a Michael Mora. Michael Mora gets hit with a right hand by George Foreman in the 10th round of a fight that he was beating the hell out of, uh, of Foreman and gets counted out. Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes get hit with that same type of right hand by Ernie Shavers, and they overcome that to win very difficult and heart-wrenching and life-and-death struggles against Ernie Shavers. Rest in peace to Ernie Shavers. No boxing fan should ever forget you, and for those who've never seen him fight, go see his fight versus Muhammad Ali and both fights against Larry Holmes when you get a chance. and Definitely see his first-round destruction of the legendary Ken Norton. He gave these guys, and Ken Norton's a Hall of Fame fighter, Holmes and Ali, two greatest heavyweights, my father said. And he gave all three guys hell, knocked out one guy in the first round and almost knocked out two of the greatest fighters that ever lived. Rest in peace, Ernie Shavers. He had a right hand like a howitzer, Ernie Shavers. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.